The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You want the good news, you want the bad news. I don't like either one of those options. Your words are super wise, man. You are a prophet. You deserve a prophet. You do whatever you want. Who am I to tell you what to do? But you're a psychologist. Well, I know less than you do. You're making me a better parent and a better wife, and thank God you're on the radio. What planet are you on? I don't buy any of that stuff. You know, I was looking for a deeper answer. What are you talking about? You make my afternoon really fun. Enjoy ya. You're about the most exciting thing I have right now. <laughs> now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. I hope that kid's life got a little more exciting. Man. Well, I'm wrestling with making a comeback. Not sure what I'm going to do about it. I've had some slippage. I was nine-time defending champion of Catholic Media's Humility Award. Now, a lot of the people had to pick a virtue to compete with. They picked charity, and they picked hope, and they picked courage. I picked humility, something that I could demonstrate intensely. And because I won the virtue competition with humility, I couldn't go get the trophy. As soon as you go get it, you lose it. Humility is very tricky that way. If you think you have it, you don't have it. So I didn't show up. They mailed it to me. So I've I've had some slippage. I've said a few things not very humble. Uh, in one particular talk, I think I used the word I 15 times. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, there, are, there are those, and believe it or not, they monitor your speaking here on the radio. They do. Uh, they count how many times I say I in a program. So I'm very careful. I See, I just said it again. Uh, me is very careful because it's an algorithm that picks up on why. So me is very careful not to say that word. This is E-Person Monday, a variant of The Doctor Is In. Had to do something. Had to do something with the E-persons. They were coming in, have been coming in for some years now fast and furious. Some of them have their origins through the TV show, Living Right with Dr. Ray. Others have their origins through the radio show. It's pretty easy to tell which is which. Because if I write back and say, can you call the radio program? I can ask some questions. Sometimes somebody says, what radio program? So that tells me right away quick. Other people say, well, I don't have time. Answer me here. <laughs> okay. So we've got, I'm looking back here, and I'm, I'm back at the beginning of, oh, let's see. Where did, okay, she said that. <laughs> Oh, anyway, so let's see. The beginning of these start in about uh, early July, but there's been a boatload since. So I will get to them. 
Irrational fears generalize. That's the word that shrink types use. Generalization. Let me illustrate. Somebody goes to a restaurant and they have a, a, a frightful experience. They choke on a piece of tough meat. And, of course, they don't pass away, but it was a very unsettling, anxiety-provoking experience before they actually coughed up this piece of meat. Perhaps someone was familiar with the Heimlich maneuver. maneuver. Well, not unusual, and I've had clients like this, who initially don't want to go back to that restaurant because in a classical conditioning kind of sense, does the name Pavlov ring a bell? Classical conditioning kind of sense. There is a anxiety attached to the sight of that restaurant, perhaps to the sounds of that restaurant, so that even pulling into the parking lot, they can feel themselves get anxious. However, not uncommonly, that particular restaurant is not the only source of anxiety. It generalizes. Now it is to other restaurants. Restaurants have a certain similarity, do they not? So the person starts to avoid restaurants. And then, because the piece of meat was rather grisly, tough, they're very nervous about eating certain kinds of meats. What does that mean? The restaurant at the time was rather crowded. It's very crowded, very noisy. Potentially, they can develop an ancillary fear of being around a whole lot of people. So the fears generalize. If someone comes to my office and we talk about this, and I make certain suggestions, the Probably what has shown itself through the research to be the best way to approach this is the old get back on the horse common sense aphorism, which is it's called exposure, helpful exposure. It's been research that says if the therapist or even somebody that they trust goes with them in these fearful environments slowly they rewire their thinking and they find out that what they thought would happen doesn't happen in their mind they create the fear of something occurring and the only way to get rid of that fear or the best way maybe I should say to get rid of that fear is to Expose yourself to the circumstances, and then the feared result doesn't happen. Now, what's my point here? As a therapist, I can't get adults to do that if they don't want to do that. If they say to themselves, my experience of anxiety is so distressing and so uncomfortable 
that I would rather not go to a restaurant. I would rather avoid large crowds. I can't make them. If I could, if I could make them, then I would feel more confident that they would settle down in their anxiety. Might even be totally gone. Little kids develop fears somewhat along the same lines. Recently had a young man, 11, develop a, almost what appeared to be a paralyzing fear of storms. And his fear generalized. It was, a, it was a relatively new fear. It happened during a power outage of a significant storm. But then it generalized. It got to the point where any kind of threatening weather. And it went further. It went further. Got to the point where there were clouds in the sky. And he developed some repetitive behaviors. He would head to windows constantly, constantly, constantly looking out. And he had developed a a whole set of coping mechanisms. Uh, Head to the basement immediately for, for, for any kind of weather. Clouds in the sky, head to the basement. Or he would seek continually reassurance from the adults. Continual, constant reassurance, constant reassurance. Tell me it's okay. Tell me it's okay. Make it right. Make it right. He would push on them to get weather reports. But then he would say, I don't want to hear the weather reports because they scared him. So what he did, and this is a relatively recent fear. I mean, it's probably not more than a couple months old. Wasn't something that he had from age three. What he did is in his head. He kept saying, there is danger here. And anything that would even remotely resemble threatening weather, a cloud can be associated with rain, can be associated with a storm, can be associated with a tornado. However unlikely, in his head, it was frightfully likely. Now, the grown-ups around him in some respects, could have mandated exposure. Or at least they could have taken away some of the avoidance mechanisms that he had developed, like checking the window 27 times an hour, or running to the basement, or wanting the adults around him to to keep tabs on the weather app. So if the adults didn't do that, there'd be a chance that he would find out that he don't he doesn't need those things to feel secure but the adults had the the wherewithal the leverage to expose him bit by bit to the things that he was afraid of so that he would see there isn't danger the danger is in my mind but you can't do that with an adult if they don't want to There's the thing. He wouldn't want to. This young man wouldn't want to. But the adults around him had the ability to make him be exposed. And I've seen a lot of kids get over fears when, in fact, the adults around them exposed them to the fear and they found out there was no danger whatsoever. But the adults, if they don't want to do it, And you can give them all the coping mechanisms in the world.
Uh, that fear is more more overpowering than their desire to live with some normalcy in certain situations. This is Dr. Ray. Thank you for joining me. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. We live right now in dark and confusing times, but Jesus is always at work. We shouldn't allow ourselves to forget what we know just because we're facing many circumstances that are threatening and confusing to us. You know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know that he's poured out his Holy Spirit and formed his body on the earth and that he is the head of the body in heaven and his body is right here on earth. You can point to it. Jesus didn't just leave us a set of teachings. Jesus, in fact, gave us himself. The church is ultimately the deifying union between Christ the head and the sanctified members of his body. And so just as the Lord unfurls himself into the Eucharist, Jesus is also extending his divinely human presence into his mystical body, the church. Cresta in the Afternoon, weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. I just had a uh, dear friend text me when I said that uh, Ken was from Buffalo in an earlier show, and I said, but I'm, I'm from humans. And she texted and she said, I think you were from Buffalo. And I sent her back and said, Buffalo are evidence that you can eat leaves and grass and walk around a lot and still gain weight. By the way, keeping with the Buffalo... Motif, what did the mother buffalo say to her her baby buffalo when he was leaving for school? Bye, son. You people aren't paying for this. Oh, you're indirectly supporting your station, but you're not paying me directly for this. So I'm not giving you my best stuff. All right, let's go to uh, E-Person here. Uh I'm normally not available to call in. I have a question about my mother-in-law. I've been married for 35 years. Now, let's see. Let's do a little bit of the math here. Let's say she got married. Let's say she got married at 25. Let's say she's 60. Now, her mother-in-law would be most likely in her 80s. And I've learned a long time ago to let dumb things she says go in one ear and out the other. Good. That's a good move. My husband... 
and our family, I'm, I'm, she's referring, I think, to her children, are the only family she has. She lost her husband in 2020. And her other son died of a drug overdose, oh boy, a couple years before his dad. Wow. This lady's been hit with some tough stuff. We've gotten along fine for most of the past 35 years, but recently she is becoming more difficult. Now, here's my question. What is fine? Are you talking that this this person is relatively easy to get along with, with the exception of things she'll say that you have to ignore for 35 years? She has always been kind and generous. Okay. That's a very positive personality characteristic. But recently, she's been rather nasty to my grown son who is staying in her home to help out. Now, see, there's a complicating factor there. She's being nasty to him because, well, they just don't get along. They see things differently or she doesn't like the way he wants to help out. I don't know. Or is her nastiness kind of irrational? In other words, he is doing things that she formerly would not have found to be a problem. She's also been nasty to our granddaughter who lives with us because her mother and her father are both incarcerated. Oh boy. I had thought my mother-in-law was depressed due to grief. Well, let's see, that's what, three years ago. But we're starting to wonder if it's more than that. Now, see, if you were talking to me, I would say, what else is she doing besides this more edgy personality? Is this pretty much in line the way she's always been? Or is this a departure from the way she's been? And are there any other things going on? How much forgetfulness? Is there confusion? Has she gotten lost? What other things are happening? So our writer says, after listening to a recent show, you mentioned early dementia. Well, as I was doing the math at the very top of this E-person, you don't have early dementia when you're in your 80s. You have early dementia when you're 50s and 60s. Um, Married for 35 years here. Our, Our writer's been married for 35 years. So let's even say she got married when she was 20. So she's 55, conservatively 55, probably older. Her mother-in-law would still at that be in well into her 70s and likely into her 80s. All right. So how do we suggest, Dr. Ray, attending doctor appointments with her? And bringing this up with her doctor. About the only way you could do something like that is that if she's going in for something that she's not sure she'll understand totally what she's being told in terms of what to do. Let's say she has some physical ailment and you say, hey, mom, you want me to go with you? I'll go in with you and I'll take notes and make sure we all understand what's going on. You can do that. That's not uncommon when... Adult children go in with their aging parents and say, I want to go in and I want to understand and ask questions for you. And then at some point, 
you can say, well, can I just can I just talk to the doctor for a few minutes myself about something? And then you explain. Here's what's happening. Uh, it, it isn't only personality changes. There are other things happening here. Now, the bad news is you can't do a whole lot about it. There's some drugs out there right now that perhaps can slow down the deterioration if they're given in early onset. It's true, but we don't have anything to stop it. And if your mother-in-law is well into her 80s, there's a decent enough chance. I saw a recent statistic that said roughly 55% of pe- or 50% of people at age 85 have some amount of forgetfulness, some amount of mild cognitive impairment, which may or may not go on to dementia. So I don't know. I'd have to have to know her age, which could only tell me the chances, perhaps, of something else entering in. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't go totally on the fact that she's gotten a little nastier. You've got a son living with her. Um, now, if she's never ever been nasty to your granddaughter, and now she's kind of irrationally nasty, you know, then then you might start to think about what it what is going on here, perhaps organically. All right, let's see what else we got here. Oh, I had that, and every time a new every time a new email comes in on my phone, then it bounces me all the way back up to the top. So I had these particular things set up let me see that one's okay here we go got it found it doctor i just wanted to get your thoughts on young girls having a diary and how to handle it if they have one my 11 year old daughter received one as a birthday present very excited to have it she's planning on writing what happens each day in her diary today's her birthday and she plans on starting writing today. As a general rule, now the diaries are kind of old-fashioned. You know that. It used to be something when people used to write stuff by hand, they were much more common. As a general rule, I didn't like them. Here's why. If, if they are simply writings of the day's events without emotional interpretation without drama i think you're they're probably relatively safe now the only way you can know that is if you have full access to the diary all too often what happens is that young people almost always girls will write things in their diary and they will convince themselves of their unhappiness They will convince themselves of their dislike of their parents' ways. They will vent their emotions. Now, old theories said, well, good. You get those emotions out. Catharsis. Don't have to deal with it because now they're out. You vented them. They're gone. Well, that ain't true. Common sense and research says that, in fact, you're rehearsing your emotions. You are fueling them. By venting them. Our 12-year-old daughter way back had a diary and, and we took it because it was, it was heading in that direction. Okay? 
I, we didn't even know she had it. I think she just got one on her own. She's always real independent that way. She got one on her own. And we explained to her exactly why we were taking it is because there's there's nobody there to to straighten out thinking. If a person, young person, complains to a parent about something, the parent can offer an alternative, more grown-up interpretation. If that young person puts that same stuff in the diary, there's nobody there to counter it. So, I'm going to I'm going to summarize this. I will give it a precise I think if I remember that word, I think it means a summary, a synopsis of my answer to this particular e-person. Father Benedict Rochelle. I'm going to tell you about the most abused woman I ever met in my life. You know her name as Roe, as in Roe versus Wade. I talked to Roe. This woman is a great penitent. This woman is a humble person who was deeply hurt. She was kneeling in the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, the National Shrine in Washington, when I met her. And I thought, what reverence. I didn't know who this woman was, but she was praying with reverence, with great fervor. And I asked a priest friend of mine, who is that? And he says, oh, that's Roe. God is not mocked. This woman was abused by those who propagate the killing of children. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. What is meditative prayer? The Catholic Catechism defines meditative prayer as, above all, a quest. The mind seeks to understand the why and how of the Christian life in order to adhere and respond to what the Lord is asking. Since the required attentiveness is difficult to sustain, we are aided by books such as sacred scripture, especially the Gospels, holy icons, liturgical texts of the day or season, and writings of the spiritual fathers. If we meditate on what we read, we make it our own. If we are humble and faithful in meditation, we discover in meditation the movements that stir the heart, enabling us to discern those movements. We are asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? There are as many methods of meditation as there are spiritual masters. The Catechism urges us to develop the desire to meditate regularly. All meditation should advance us to the knowledge of the love of the Lord Jesus. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Ray Durandi program here. The doctor is in. This is the e-person variant of the doctor is in. I do not say email. Patriarchal. Linguistically insensitive. I know those are those of you who are thinking, well, Dr. Ray, it's a homonym. It sounds the same, but it's a completely different word. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Just the sound is insensitive. So I'm I'm working my way out of even person because that second syllable, of course, is son, male, gender insensitive, vicariously. 
you really got to watch your language these days. What, what you could say a week ago, you can't say now. It's the way it is. Dr. Ray, I recently heard a psychiatrist say, quote, the root of all depression is envy and jealousy. Which struck me. Is this true? I believe envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Would it be a stretch to generalize that depression is typically associated with sin? Grazie, Marco. Believe it or not, there's an awful lot of stuff packed into those couple of sentences. Obviously, I don't know exactly the context of the statement, the root of all depression is envy and jealousy. I think it's safe to say that the root of some depression can be envy. You compare yourself to another person or other persons, you'll always find people better than you. And if, you're, if your image is fragile, uh, yeah, you, you could talk yourself into a pretty blue state. Envy or jealousy. So not all depression. A lot of depression is caused by various factors, life factors, interpretation of life factors, a buildup of bad choices, which lead to bad results. Some small percentage of depression is biochemically based. So yeah, depression is a very broad entity with all kinds of etiologies. That's a fancy word for causes. He says, I believe envy is one of the seven deadly sins. One of the interesting things about envy I think it's the only deadly sin that doesn't have a payoff. When you envy someone, anger can have a payoff, you know that. Sloth can have a payoff. Pride can have a payoff. But when you envy someone, there's no payoff there. It just makes you miserable. It doesn't do any there's no gain to it at all of any kind. Would it be a stretch to generalize that depression is typically associated with sin? Uh, in one of my books, I, I talk about this. It's called When Faith Causes Family Friction. And the question was, if I had more faith, would I be less depressed? And, of course, that depends. Now, I didn't put that as my answer. I went on with more detail. I think depression can very much be caused or indirectly affected by sin. For example, there's a lot of research coming out that uh, if a person is heavily into pornography, don't even have to be heavily, it can cause all kinds of trouble in their lives, in their marriage, in their jobs, in their personal contentment, in their behavior patterns. And as a result, when you make an awful lot of bad moves and things start to fall apart for you, you can get depressed. Uh, if, for example, you are easily angered and that anger manifests itself in mistreatment of other people, well, you're going to find yourself slowly more isolated from people. That kind of isolation can lead to depression. So I guess the summary of this and by the way speaking of summary i did not summarize that previous email like i said i would 
All right, well, I have to summarize it after I summarize this. You can summarize it by saying, to the degree that you depart from the way God says to do things. I mean, he's, in the words of my six-year-old son, back when, that God, he's a pretty smart guy, isn't he? Oops. Oh, boy, shouldn't say guy, huh? Even though God chose to converse with us in the male pronoun, nevertheless, 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 um, we know he's a spirit, so he isn't male nor female. He knows the best way to live. He designed us. And to the degree that we say, well, no, 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 I know a better way to live. I'm going to live my way. I did it my way. It's the song, perhaps, of those consigned to the other place. We start to bring all kinds of personal, relational, marital, emotional, social repercussions upon ourselves. And as those accumulate, it's not unusual at all that depression rises. I get people in my office who are depressed. But as we talk, they've had a history of running their lives absolutely terribly. The choices they've made, the decisions, all the things they chased, and they're wondering why they're miserable. So, in a sense, I think it's very safe to say that sin, or if you're not a Christian, wrong living, dumb living, short-sighted living, foolish living, results, like gravity, in a predictable outcome. And that predictable outcome is discontent, misery, unhappiness. Anxiety. So yeah, yeah, sin is, sin is, at the very least, a heavy indirect cause of depression. Those of you who know people who have left the church, and in leaving the church they've gotten angry at all kinds of things that morally they once were taught, but they've rejected all of them. And a common theme to emerge is that these are not happy people. These are folks that, despite all their quote-unquote freedom from religion, they should be happy, should they not? But they're not. Why not? They pursued what they wanted. Is it possible that their pursuit was terribly misguided? So, in fact, to summarize, yes, Yes, sin can be a cause of depression. It's, it's not the only cause, but it's a big one up there on the list. Now, I'm looking at the clock here, and I'm going to get shut off here because of the hard break. Now, to keep my promise, I will summarize my summary of the question, should young girls have diaries?
The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. An advanced care planning document, or ACP, is one kind of advanced directive, providing a written statement of a person's desired medical treatments in the future. A recent study titled, What's Wrong with Advanced Care Planning?, concluded that there is a gap between hypothetical scenarios and real-world decision-making. Another study found that 80% of emergency room physicians misinterpreted an ACP as a do-not-resuscitate order. Another issue is that any disagreement between medical professionals and the patient's healthcare agent regarding specific ACP language may undermine the patient's ultimate wishes. Your best bet is never to sign an advanced care planning document, such as a pulse form when admitted to a hospital. And make sure your healthcare durable power of attorney has a provision which invalidates any previously signed ACP. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. We're all going to suffer. No one is getting out of this life unscathed. Even if you're an agnostic or an atheist, everyone is going to suffer. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, as the Lord tells us in the New Testament. So what do we do with it? Do we just say, oh, I'm so glad that's over and don't learn anything from it? Or do we say, okay, God, this was not fun? Or as St. Teresa of Avila, the great doctor of the church and my patron said, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few, right? Like, really, Lord? Seriously? And that's okay if you express yourself that way, obviously with respect and love, but St. Teresa of Avila did it, and so many saints expressed their frustrations that way. But at the end of the day, they still came back to God and said, okay, Lord, this really stinks, but I know somehow at the end, I'm going to come through it, and you're going to show me what you want me to do with it. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Avoiding all known forms of psychobabble, even some that have not yet made it to the lexicon. When's the last time you heard me say, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm not comfortable with that. I can't go with that. What might be another option? If you heard me say that I want, I want sightings, I want the date. This is Dr. Ray. This is E-Person Monday. Now, I promise to summarize the question of what do I think about an 11-year-old girl having a diary? As a general rule, if I know nothing else, nothing else, I'm very much against it because diaries tend to be venting places, and venting places tend to be rehearsed emotions, and when you have rehearsed emotions, they get more intense. You, you convince yourself of how bad it is. And there's no other person to counter your thinking and your feeling. Now, if the diary is just something that is, I just want to write down, I just want to keep track of all the neat things that happened to me today and what the day was like and we had a birthday party and that was fun and we went swimming. Okay. But if you're going to allow a diary, I would say this, the diary is also always open to yours, not a private diary. I can categorically say I'm against private diaries. Too risky. But if it's totally open and the child says, yeah, yeah, you can read anything I write. By the way, that, that's an interesting 
rule for progress notes. I'm going to digress here for a moment, give you a little insight into the professional world of psychology. I think a very wise guideline for writing progress notes. A progress note is a note generally written after a session, summarizing what went on in the session, observations, details, suggestions, things of importance. Now, the client has access to those notes. The client can see those notes. So it's always good to only write that which the client can see, if they so chose. You don't want to say something like, well, this is one of the more poorly wrapped individuals that's ever walked into my office. You don't want to write something like that. Plus, you don't want to think something like that. But you don't write it. Or you write something like, highly unlikely the therapy will work at all whatsoever because the client is essentially too close-minded and unwilling to change. Uh, you don't write that either. It's kind of parallel to the ongoing fear of someone like me who does a program where the microphone is on when I'm talking to the people, but during the break, the microphone is simply not on to the general public. I can talk, I can converse with Andrew Kruchek, my producer man, or my call screamer. We can talk business or we can just talk family or whatever else comes up. But I learned a long time ago, I do not trust technology. I've seen, I've seen people, at the very least, terribly embarrassed and at the very worst losing their career because they said something off air on a live mic. You're all familiar with President Obama's on the live mic when he was talking to his Russian counterpart about nuclear weapons and he said I'll have much more flexibility after the next election that was caught on a live mic didn't cause any problems for him but still so whenever I talk to Andrew on this mic I uh, I make sure that if that if that mic were somehow some way on and I have had a couple times where people said I heard you you were on a live mic, and I thought, how could that be? But they did, and they quoted what I said, so obviously they did. So I make sure whatever I say is not going to be anything that I would be embarrassed by or ashamed of or would be negative at all. And I shouldn't do that anyway. That's the point. shouldn't do it anyway. And that's what I think diaries can do. Um. <clears throat> I'm looking... At, I don't know, Andrew, what do you think? If I take another E-person, I'm going to take this. <sighs> this is a long one or a longer one. Let me take the break now, if you will. I'm asking your permission, but it's my show. I don't need your permission. I'm going to take the break now, and then I will deal with this a little more detail when we come back. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, 
Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Do you have a lonely brain? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Loneliness, only enhanced during the pandemic, can actually help alter certain brain patterns, which can lead to various mental health issues like anxiety and depression. Your physical health can be challenged. Even with social media, loneliness is described as an epidemic. Loneliness can be complex, and there's a stigma associated with it. But mindfulness training, what you and I may call quiet and holy time, has been shown to combat loneliness. Pray more. Breathe deeply. Increase your list of friends. Even force being more social. Don't be afraid to gather or appropriately touch others. A hug or a fist bump can signal that you are present with somebody. Let's not forget our priests and religious sisters and brothers. When was the last time you hugged your priest? If you sense somebody you know is lonely, ask them how you can help. Check out the Journey Strong tab for more on the lonely brain at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. This program is brought to you in part by MyLifeAngels.com. MyLifeAngels provides peace of mind by notifying you the moment a loved one enters an emergency room. Right on your smartphone, you'll have instant access to everything needed, including all legal documents, to ensure you are empowered to protect their life-affirming wishes. MyLifeAngels also alerts hospital ER staff with critical medical information and emergency contacts. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Ray Garendi here. The program Doctor is in Monday through Friday. Co-production of EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and the Ave Maria Radio Communications. Dr. Ray, I'm a practicing Catholic, married to a non-Catholic. A brief background. I was raised in a strong Catholic family. I'm one of eight children. I was homeschooled. I wanted to marry someone who was a devoted Catholic. However... When I was about 29, I lost hope that that would ever happen, so I started to date my now husband. Okay, I I think what she's saying here is that he was not a devout Catholic, but she thought, all things considered, hopefully we'll grow together, and even though he's not starting the marriage out as a committed Catholic, Maybe that can change. We had an up-and-down relationship. Okay. For how long? She says, we were eventually married in the church when I was 34. So for five years, an up-and-down relationship. That may, that would make me nervous. When you got an up-and-down relationship in the courtship, ooh, that is not a good sign for the marriage. We now have two sons. Both were baptized Catholic, and I'm raising both Catholic. What advice do you have for me being married to a non-Catholic? Okay, I will get to that in a second here because she has another paragraph, which I think could change the advice I give her. A little more information. My husband has no interest in Catholicism. He says he'll make it to heaven. Quote, God has mercy. There's a lot of that floating around these days. I've declared that I'm a good enough person that God has no choice 
but to let me into heaven. And I always say to folks like that, well, you better hope he thinks just like you. He attended our son's baptisms, but he doesn't attend Mass. He, he won't allow our sons to be sent to Catholic school or to be homeschooled. We use NFP, but after our second child, he said he didn't want any more children. Our sons are five and three. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the impediments to a valid sacramental marriage is to welcome children. And if in the beginning he said he would, but then he changed his mind, that's, that, that throws a, a real light onto this thing. But I'm going to assume that you want to be married for the sake of your sons. I'm 40. He's 45. I work full-time as a public school teacher. He is a stay-at-home parent. He stopped working shortly after we were married. It's been several years now, I guess, yeah, and has never tried to work again. I work because I feel I have no choice. Now, this is an interesting line. He is a good and caring father. Okay. All right, I, I I can accept that. I mean, obviously, that's what she says, so probably in a lot of ways he's very devoted to his sons, but yet at the same time, um, he isn't willing to, to get a job, perhaps, so his wife can stay home. He takes good care of our sons and our home while I'm at work. I would much prefer, key line here, to be a stay-at-home mom and not work and have a fully employed husband. What advice do you have? Well, Mom, I doggone it, I shouldn't have done that. Well, I hate, hate sentences to start out with well. That's like I'm searching for something to say and I stalled for time. <clears throat> I would, if you haven't already, give up totally all kinds of trying to influence him to the faith. Probably the more you would try that, the more he would dig in his heels. So for your own peace, you're going to have to accept that this aspect of your marriage is not there, at least for now. If you continue to want it there, and you continue to push for it there, and you continue to get frustrated because it's not there, you will continue to live in agitation. So at this point, you just might let go of the idea that I'm going to try to nudge him, push him, influence him, talk him. If he's willing to read, you could give him some things, but it sounds like he has, as you said, no interest. God's going to let him into heaven. Why? Because, well, God's merciful. That's all. There you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> probably, and this is something I tell spouses who are wanting to be very faithful Catholics, but their spouse has no interest. Your best way to influence them is to show them that you being religious is to their benefit. It makes you easier to live with. Makes you more caring, makes you more charitable, makes you kinder, makes you more forgiving, makes you more tolerant. But Dr. Ray, if I do that, 
They'll just think, I'm perfectly happy and everything is wonderful and they'll continue to do what they're doing and even more so because they'll just take it all for granted. That can happen, but it's not the most common response. The most common response, unless you live with something that's total, someone that who is totally unreachable, is that they soften. Maybe not as much as you want, but more than now. So if your faith translates into your conduct as a spouse, that may be the best way for him to see that his wife is a truly beautiful soul and that in fact he owes it to her to respond in some way. I'd have to know more about his resistance. I'd also be curious as to why he just doesn't want to work. What is that about? Where's that coming from? If he says I'm more attuned to being an at-home father and I can do that and I can take care of the kids and I can take care of the house and you make good money as a teacher and you've got the benefits and all of that, well, I suppose you could add some rationale to that, but if beneath it is a, I don't want to work, <laughs> I don't want to have to be somewhere at a certain time, I don't want to have somebody over me, I don't want to do this. The question also becomes is how educated is this guy? If he's saying to himself, you know, you're a teacher and you're making seventy-two grand a year with your master's, I would go out and I'd get a job for 31000 a year. Um, hmm, that wouldn't work. I don't, I don't know. There's so much to know. But the main advice I would give you, Mom, is that, one, uh, quit pushing on him. Pushing and preaching. Uh, that's not going to get you anywhere. Two, show him because of your love for the faith that you're a more loving person. You're easier to live with. You are warmer to live with. I know that's hard because if you're not getting in return what you would like, that's tough. But to the degree you can do it, he'll see that this faith of yours transforms you and it may start to affect him for the better. He may feel guilty about the fact that his wife gives so much to this marriage and he doesn't. I don't know. I don't know what the situation is. But that's what, in my experience, I've seen as changing someone's heart in a marriage where they are, quote-unquote, unequally yoked. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Doctor Is In on this E-Person Monday. Appreciate very much your company. Walk with God, and if other people see you walking with God, well, could transform a few of them, or at least nudge them in that direction. Maybe walk along. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.